Please allow me to add my word of welcome. We're delighted in your presence today. So glad that you could be here. George, I told them I was not preaching today, that you were coming. Look at this crowd. They came to hear you. And you, you're going to love preaching to these people. They're happy people. They're easy to preach to. They're great folks. We're so glad all of you could be here. Now, let me just quickly, before I, I tell you about George, I've told you he was coming, told you a lot about him. But I want you to understand the schedule. Some of you are still a little confused about the schedule. You knew to come here, George, this morning. Here you are. He'll be preaching tomorrow night at 6 o'clock here at the church. His brother John Ed will be preaching at the 1015 service this morning and at 6 o'clock tonight here at the church. You need to hear both of them. I will be watching. It will go on your permanent record. I expect all of you to be at all the services. We really are excited to have these folks here. They do a great job. Now, I've known George for over 45 years. Did you realize that? For over, we were young when we started, weren't we? And George has never been notified of his age. He just keeps going. He hasn't changed a bit. But George has served in uh, Saraland United Methodist Church down in Mobile, served Kingswood down there, two big churches for years and years. Then he was at Auburn for the past 26 years at the Auburn Methodist Church up there. Now he's uh, retired, but he still keeps working and preaching and playing tennis, a lot of tennis. Did you win the tournament? He just came back from Central Florida or South Florida? South Florida, Naples down there. Did you win? Did you get first place? Yeah, all right. Yeah. He's, uh, he's been the sportsman of the year in Alabama, number one in his age group in tennis for years. He, uh, his wife, Montaigne, is here. Montaigne, would you please stand so they could recognize you? We're so glad to have Montaigne. And he and Montaigne have one daughter, Mallory. They live in Atlanta, and they have two grandsons that are twins. And we're jealous. We only have one granddaughter. We've ordered more, but everything's backed up on Amazon, so... <laughs> We're going to see what's going to happen. Now, George, George has preached all over the place. He's very, very um, popular in camp meetings. He goes everywhere all the time, speaking all the time. He hasn't slowed down one bit. He was the chaplain for the Auburn football team uh, when he was serving at the Auburn Methodist Church there. Uh, he goes to a lot of coaches' things and different things like that. But the main thing is he's just a great person with a great heart who loves the Lord and really loves to preach and come and share and be around Christian folks. And we are so glad to have George here today. We want to give him a warm woodlawn welcome. Let's let him know. How you? Get his mic turned on. Right. Okay, I might just stand right here. Thank you, right. Thank you, brother. It's such a joy and honor to be here. I love Joe. He served the Trinity Church up near Opelika where I served, and the people in that area love Laura and him so much, and he has been one of my very best friends over the years. I've loved him, and he's been like a second brother to me, and to have the opportunity to come and to be with Donna Sue. Donna Sue came out of our church at Auburn, and I believe I preached four revivals in the South Georgia Conference when you were there at Bainbridge and Cairo and really more than that, a couple of churches you served and she has meant so much to me and what a blessing it is to, for you to have her here. And John Naftal and his sweet daughter Brandy, it's so good to have them here. 
I worked, Brother John was a member of my church in Auburn, and I couldn't do anything with him, and I sent him down here to see if Joe could. And Joe said, I ain't been able to do anything with him, so you come and preach to him. So, Brother John, I'm, I'm here to, to preach to you. But thank you, thank you again for this opportunity to come and to be with you, and I appreciate Bill and the great job in choir. You were wonderful today. What a blessing. I had, uh, had the joy of speaking to Linda Bowden's mother. Uh, Tommy, and T I don't know if you're familiar with the Bowden family. He was at FSU as the head coach. Terry was the head coach at Auburn, uh, at Auburn, and Tommy was his offensive coordinator. Tommy went to Tulane, went undefeated, and then to Clemson. They were members of First Baptist Church in Auburn. They, the Bowdens are very devout Baptists. And while they were there, I did a Bible study for, for Tommy and Terry and got to be real close to them. And they joined the Methodist Church. Now, this really happened. Bobby Bowden, Bobby, who was at Florida State, called me. And he said, George, I don't know what you're doing, but my two sons, Tommy and Terry, are Baptist, and you've brought them into the Methodist Church. And I want to know what's going on there. And I said, they just wanted to come and get some spiritual nourishment, Brother Bobby. And, but it's, it's such an honor to be here, and I'm looking forward to preaching tomorrow night. And I hope you will be here tonight to hear my brother, John Ed. We're staying together at the same hotel. And John Ed was pastor for 36 years of the largest. But before I share that with you, I also wanted to share with you that my dad, Brother Cy Matheson, was from Panama City. He served the Gulfview Church. He served First Methodist Church for for several years, and, and Joe, I felt like I'm really coming home because I preached for Dad several times at Gulfview, and he loved the people, especially the snowbirds, those of you who, who come down, and, but I want you to know how, how much you meant to my mother and father over the years, and, but John Ed is going to be preaching tonight, and I hope you'll plan to come and hear him. John Ed was pastor of the largest church in Alabama, for 36 years, the Frazier Church. His services were telecast not only around all over the nation, but around the world. He is a powerful and dynamic preacher. He's speaking at Sharkies this morning. We'll be speaking here tonight. And he usually uses my sermons when he preaches, <laughs> Brother Joe. So if he preaches this one tonight, you will have already heard it, so you will know whose sermon it is. But John Ed, I want you to meet my brother John Ed. You will, you will just love him so much. John Ed served the Frazier Church for 36 years. That's almost unheard of in, 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 any, in any denomination. The last Sunday John Ed was there, Brother Joe, this actually happened. The chairman of the administrative board introduced John Ed for his last sermon. And the chairman of the board said, this is John Ed's last sermon here at Fraser." And then he made this statement. He said, Jesus brought John Ed to us 36 years ago. Now Jesus is taking John Ed away from us. Let's all stand and sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. 
but you're going to have the opportunity of hearing John Ed tonight, and I know that'll be a blessing. I want to do a sermon for just a few moments that I trust will be a big help to you, and I want to entitle it, Keys to Victorious Living. Keys to Victorious Living. Now, I dare say, every one of us here this morning, we all want to live life victoriously. We want to live life abundantly. We, we want to get all out of life that life has to give to us, regardless of our age at this point in our lives. Now, I want to show you today how you can live a victorious life and how you can, how you can claim a lifestyle that can make a difference in the way you live. Now, I want to share two verses of Scripture. And it's the margin between these two verses that I want us to occupy with our thinking. The first verse is found in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. Now, when you read the verses that lead up to this, to, to, to this particular text, you remember Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi, and Simon Peter had just made his mighty affirmation and said to the Christ, you are the Christ to the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to him, and it's verse 19. Now the title of the message, Keys to Victorious Living. And Jesus responded to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. Peter, I will give to you the keys to the kingdom. Now, I want you to notice that. I'll give to you the keys to the kingdom. Now, our Lord was talking about keys in an eschatological and futuristic tense. But I believe there are three keys the Lord Jesus wants to give to you today, just as he gave those keys to Peter. And these keys will open the door to a victorious life that you never thought possible. Now, a second verse that I want to lift up is John chapter 10, verse 10. Now, this is a very important verse of Scripture because it tells us why Jesus came into this world. Jesus says in this verse, I've come that you might have life. It's the Greek word zoon, zeta, omicron, omicron, nu. We get our word zoology from this particular word, life. I've come that you might have zoon, life. But notice our Lord does not put the period down there. But he goes on to say, and have it more abundantly. One translation says, and have it victoriously. The Greek word that we translate abundantly is the word perissos. And in the Greek, it's a word that means to the full. It means to the overflowing. And my dear brother and sister, that's how God wants you to live. He doesn't want you just to get by. He wants you to live victoriously. He wants you to live abundantly. He wants you to live a life that is full and overflowing. Now, the question that I want to raise before the house this morning is this. How can you live the parisos, the abundant life? How can you live the victorious life that's spoken of in our second verse? You've got to go back to the first verse in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. And you, this morning, have got to open your heart and your mind, and you've got to allow your Lord to give to you three keys. And at the end of the service, we're going to have an altar prayer time. And I'm going to invite you, you can pray in your seat, or if you wish to come, 
And I want you to come with an open heart and receive these three keys. And I promise you, you will walk out from here a different person. You will walk out from here with victory in your heart and on your mind. Now let me give to you the three keys and then we'll talk about them. If you're going to live life victoriously, number one, you need the first key number one, an enthusiasm that is contagious. An enthusiasm that is contagious. And then number two, you need a compassion that is genuine. A compassion that is genuine. And then key number three, a faith that is real. A faith that is real. And as I preach this very simple sermon, I want you to evaluate your heart. And I want you to look at the enthusiasm in your life. I want you to look at, I want you to look at the compassion. And I want you to look at your faith. All right, the first key. And as I preach this sermon today, I want you just to imagine the Lord Jesus standing right here in front of this aisle with his nail-scarred hands extended to you. And in those hands, I want you to see three keys. And he's saying, I want you to take these keys out of my hands, and I want you to put them into your heart, and I want you to, to utilize them starting today. All right, number one, an enthusiasm that is contagious. Now, who are the people that get your attention today? In your social circles, where you, where you work, your, your friends here at church, they are people who are excited and enthused about life. I, I was listening to this wonderful choir today, and they blessed me not only with their beautiful music, but also with the big smiles on their faces, with the enthusiasm with which they sang. If you're going to live victoriously, you've got to be enthusiastic about life. I've known Brother Joe for a long time, and one of the things I've appreciated about, about his life and ministry is his enthusiasm for ministry and for life. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, nothing great was ever accomplished without enthusiasm. Samuel Taylor Coleridge said, enthusiasm as nothing else makes all the difference in the world. The word enthusiasm is an interesting word. It's actually built from two Greek words, enthusiasm, enthus, en, it's the Greek preposition, epsilon nu, like our preposition, in, in, and the word thus is a Greek word which is a corruption for God which, of the word theos. And so in the Greek, the word enthusiasm linguistically and literally means to be in God. And my dear friends, when you are in God and God is in you, you can't help but be excited about life. Some time ago, Brother Joe, I was preaching in revival services in a church down in South Florida. And I remember before we went into the sanctuary that Sunday evening, I noticed a little essay on the wall entitled Enthusiasm. And I read it, and I was so inspired by it that I asked him to give me a copy of it. Let me share this with you. Now, as I share it, 
This was written for the corporate world, and I imagine many of you are retired from corporations, but yet it has a powerful spiritual connotation. Now, we're under key one, an enthusiasm that is contagious. Listen to this little essay. Enthusiasm, that's certain something that makes us great. It pulls us out of mediocrity and the commonplace. It builds into us power. It glows and shines. It brightens up our faces. It puts zest into our lives. Enthusiasm is the keynote that makes us sing and makes others sing along with us. Enthusiasm, the maker of friends, the maker of smiles, the producer of confidence. It cries to the world, I've got what it takes. It tells people everywhere that the job I work is the very best in the world, and the house for which I work just suits me, and the goods we have are the very best. Enthusiasm, the inspiration that makes us wake up and live. It puts spring in our steps because there's spring in our hearts. It puts a twinkle in our eyes. It gives us confidence, not only in ourselves, but in our fellow man and in God. It rids our minds of critical and negative thoughts and replaces them with positive and constructive thoughts. It prevents us from looking for the bad in people and things, and it prompts us to look for the good. Enthusiasm, it gives confidence. It changes a deadpan salesman to a producer, a pessimist to an optimist, and a loafer into a go-getter. It builds power under difficulties, and it is the vital moving action, uh, vital moving force that impels action. Enthusiasm. If we have it, we ought to thank God for it. If we don't have it, we need to get down on our knees and we need to ask God for it. And we need to stay there until he gives it to us. Now, if you want to live the parisos, victorious, abundant life, You've got to take this first key, an enthusiasm that is contagious. And I want you to know enthusiasm is contagious. You want to see your church grow? The more enthusiastic you get about it, you are about it, and people see that enthusiasm in you, they'll want to come to the place where things are happening because they see God's effect upon your life. An enthusiasm that is contagious. Now, the second key that we need to take today not only an enthusiasm that's contagious, but number two, a compassion that is genuine. A compassion that is genuine. Now, enthusiasm by itself is not enough. As a matter of fact, if you live life and all you've got is enthusiasm, it can be counterproductive and it can be dangerous. You've got to balance that enthusiasm with a genuine care and compassion for people. You've got to love people. Too much enthusiasm can get you in trouble. Brother Joe, I remember when we first moved to Auburn, I was driving down, down Gay Street in Auburn, and I, I never will forget one of the main thoroughfares there in Auburn, and I was driving a little too enthusiastically. 
And I remember I looked in my rearview mirror and I saw what we all hate to see when we look in our rearview mirrors. I saw a little red and blue light going round and round. And I remember I pulled off to the side. What, what do you say when you get pulled over by a police officer? Well, I'll tell you this, you be as polite and as nice as you know how to be. I remember I was sitting there and I was looking in my rearview mirror as he opened his door. That was the biggest policeman I have ever seen in my life. I remember he had, on, he had on dark sunglasses, the darkest shades I have ever seen. He had a little narrow hip, hips and big broad shoulders. And I remember he got out, of his, got out of his squad car and he looked in the mirror and he sort of rubbed his shoulders around a little bit and rolled his neck around. And he started walking towards my car. I don't know if y'all have watched that TV program here that we have in Auburn, but I was thinking about the theme song of that show. Bad boy, bad boy, what you gonna do? Bad boy, bad boy, I'm a coming after you. And I remember I was sitting there and he came and he stood by my window. And I, I said the first words that came to my mind. I said, Mr. Policeman, please don't give me a ticket. I said, I am just a poor Methodist minister. <laughs> and I remember he looked at me and he said, I know you are, Brother Matheson. I was in your church Sunday and I heard you try to preach. But too much enthusiasm can get you into trouble. You've got to balance that enthusiasm with a love and compassion for people. And that's a key that only the Lord God Almighty can give to you. Let me tell you, we're living in a world all around us. There are people crying out for the compassion which only you have to give. There are people everywhere longing for somebody to care about them. When John Wesley sent his ministers out, he said to them, as you go to preach the gospel, my brothers, preach to the brokenhearted. You'll find one on every pew, in every church, every Sunday of the year. I remember my dad, Brother Si, said to my brother, John Ed, and me as we were starting out in the ministry. He said, boys, you be kind and loving to every person you meet because every person you meet is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. Oh, there are people in your community who are longing for the love you have to give. You'd be surprised how many hurting hearts there are in this beautiful place of worship here right now. And only the good Lord knows how many pillows last night were wet with tears the rest of this old world will never know anything about. And there are people who are waiting for you to care for them and love them in the spirit of Christ. Now maybe you're sitting there and you're saying to yourself, Brother George, I was really with you on that first point, enthusiasm. I, I need to get more enthusiastic. I need to get more enthusiastic about my church, about my Lord, about my faith, about life itself. But I'm not sure I know how to be caring and compassionate. I don't know what to say. Let me tell you something about the ministry of compassion. You don't have to say anything. 
What's important is for you to just be there. In pastoral care, it is called a theology of presence. Just being there for people and letting them know that you love them. One of the great theologians of the church was Baron von Hegel. And Dr. von Hegel said, caring is the most important thing in the world. In the final analysis, caring is what really matters. And that's something all of us can do. We can go to somebody who's hurting, and we can love them, and we can care about them. I read about a community that had a contest to try to find the most caring little child, and they were going to award that child a blue ribbon. A precious little 11-year-old boy won the contest. And the reason he won the contest was because his next-door neighbor, who was 96 years of age, he had been married for 70 years. His wife had just died. That little 11-year-old boy went next door and visited that elderly man whose wife had just died. And the people in the neighborhood were so impressed with it. And his mother said to him, Son, son we know that you visited our neighbor, but nobody knows what you said to him. Nobody knows what conversation took place. What did you say? And that sweet little boy looked at his mother and said, Well, Mommy, I just walked the next door. I walked up the sidewalk, up the steps, across the porch. I looked through the screen porch, and our neighbor was sitting in a rocking chair in the living room all by himself. And while he was sitting there, he had a blanket around him. It was very cold in that living room. There was just a light bulb hanging by a cord from the ceiling. And I opened the door, and I walked across the living room, and I stood by his chair. And Mommy, as I stood there, I noticed that he had in his hands a picture of his wife. And he was just sitting there looking at it. And I stood by his chair. And the little boy's mother said, Well, son, what did you say? And that little boy said, Mommy, I did not say anything. I just looked at him, and he looked at me. And I crawled up in his lap, and I put my arms around his neck, and I hugged him. And he looked at the picture of his wife, and I looked at it. And Mommy, he started to cry. And I just hugged him tighter and cried right along with him. The Bible says, and a little child shall lead them. I think that's the best example of a theology of care and compassion that I've read anywhere. Maybe you've got a lot of enthusiasm, but I've got a feeling there's somebody here today. And you need to let the good Lord slip into your heart the key of a compassion. Notice that's genuine. I'm talking about care that's real. And then very quickly, let me mention to you this third key. Jesus said to, to Brother Peter, Peter, I'll, I'll give to you the keys. And he's saying to us here at Woodlawn right now, I want to give to you these three keys. 
an enthusiasm that's contagious, a compassion that's real, that's genuine. And then number three, a faith that is real. Let me ask you a very personal question. And this is the reason I've come down to be with you. How real is your faith this morning? Now, I want you to think about that. How real is your faith? Now, we certainly need to give intellectual assent to what we believe. But our faith should also be something that we feel. One of the great theologians in Germany in the 19th century was a man named Alfred Schleimacher. And Dr. Dr. Schleimacher said, religion is man's feeling of absolute dependence upon God. How real is your faith? Can you sing from the very depths of your heart and soul? And not only sing the words, but mean them. It's real, it's real. I know it's real. I can feel him deep in my soul. Well, if your faith's not real, he wants to give to you a faith that is real. Can you say along with Nehemiah, that does your faith put a twinkle in your eye and a smile on your face? Can you say along with Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is my strength? Is your faith that real? Can you say along with the writer of Proverbs in chapter 3, in all my ways every day, O God, I am, a, I am acknowledging you and I'm walking in your pathway. Is your faith so real that as you go through the day, there is that immediate feeling of the presence of God with you? Whether you're, whether you're basking on the mountaintop in the salubrious sunshine of God's love, you've got a smile on your face and life is great and it could not be any better. Your bank account's up, your blood pressure's down, and everything is going great, and you couldn't be any happier. And you know that God is with you. But how real is your faith when you're walking through, when you come down from the mountain and you walk through the valley, and your eyes are filled with tears, and your heart is breaking, and you can barely put one foot in front of the other? Is your faith so real that you can say along with David, Yea, though I walk through that dark valley, I will not fear, for you are with me. When you're tempted, and we all are going to be tempted, can you not only say, but believe these words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful in the midst of it. And he will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able. And with the temptation, he will make a way for you to escape. When you find yourself in the dark, deep pit of despair and despondency and depression, and what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul, and that dark night comes to all of us at times. Can you lift your hand to heaven? And can you shout with the Apostle Paul, I know whom I have believed, 
and I am persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him until that day. When something bad happens in your life, can you, a good person, understand that bad situation within the parameters of Romans 8.28? And we know that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. It doesn't say all things are good because all things are not good. Cancer is not good. Divorce is not good. Hurt is not good. And Paul doesn't say these things are good. He says God works them for good. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and who are the called according to His purpose. Is your faith, is your faith so real that it gives to you hope? And you can say along with Paul as he wrote to the Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Is your faith so real that when you're worried and anxious and all stressed out, that you can say along with Brother Isaiah, God keeps me in perfect peace when my mind is fixed upon Him. When you feel weak, and you begin the day and you're not sure you're going to be able to make it through the day. Can you say along with the apostle? Is your faith so real you can say along with Paul in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Is your faith so real that on that inevitable day when your feet wade into the waters of chilly Jordan and the dreaded pale horseman comes from behind the shadows and peeks out and calls your name. Can you lift your hands to heaven and can you say along with Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives to us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is your faith so real that it makes heaven a reality? And Brother Joe, the older I get, the sweeter heaven becomes to me because I see so many of my friends and even family members crossing over to the, to the other side. Is your faith so real that, you can, that heaven is a reality to you? And you can say along with Paul, in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain and something so much better. What I'm asking you in closing, is your faith real? I close with this. I heard about a violin that nobody cared anything about or had any use for until one day a connoisseur of violins came along the violin was covered with dust. The strings were loose. Some of them were broken. And that violinist wiped the dust away and made beautiful music. Our lives this morning are just like that violin. This morning, our lives, many of us, like that violin, they're covered with the dust of pain, hurt, brokenness, and tears. And the strings, many of them are broken. But then Jesus comes.
He wipes the dust away. He sweeps across the broken strings and stirs the slumbering chords again. And he places that violin beneath his chin and holds it close to his heart. And he makes beautiful music. Music about a victorious life that he longs for you to live. It was battered and scarred and the old auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good folk, he cried, who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, then two, only two. Two dollars, who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going, going, and almost gone. But from the room far back, an old gray-haired man came forward as he picked up the bow and as he wiped the dust from the old violin. He played a melody pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings. And then the music ceased. And the auctioneer with a voice that was calm and low said, Now what am I bid for the old violin as he held it up with a bow? A thousand dollars and who'll make it two? Two thousand and who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going, going, and gone. The people cheered, but some of them cried. We don't quite understand what changed its worth. Quick came the reply. It was the touch of the master's hand. This morning, there are so many who are battered and scarred with sin. And they're simply being auctioned sheep to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin, a mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game and they travel alone. They're going once, they're going twice, they're going, going, and almost gone. But you know, the foolish crowd will never quite be able to understand the change that's wrought or the soul that's saved by the touch of the Master's hand. And this brings us right back to where we started that hand, that nail-scarred hand, is extended to us today. And he says, I want to give to you. I, our Lord longs to share with you three keys. And he says, if you'll take these three keys and unlock these three doors, you will be the recipient of what's behind those doors and enthusiasm that can change your life. It's contagious a compassion and love and sensitivity to people and a faith that is real. Will you bow your heads, please? We're going to have an altar prayer time and our, we'll have music. And I understand this is kind of a tradition in this service and I'm so thankful for it. While we're singing or while the music is being played, if you'd like to just sit where you are right now and maybe just think of Jesus coming and standing in front of you and placing in your heart and in your mind these three keys. Or if you want to come and kneel at the altar, maybe you're saying, Lord, help me to be more enthusiastic. I'm enthusiastic about football and soccer and make me enthusiastic about you. 
Father, sensitize my heart and make me more loving. But most importantly, Lord, because the first two keys stem from the third, give to me a faith 